Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Raj Basord. I'm a consultant psychiatrist based in private practice, and I'm delighted to be day, today to be joined by Sean Bauman. And we're sitting um, in um, the centre of private practice in London, in Harley Street, which is a vast contrast to the psychiatry that Sean practices, because he is a psychiatrist that works in a hospital in South Africa. And he's written a fascinating book entitled Madness, Stories of Uncertainty and Hope. And it's really um, a kind of blow-by-blow -blow account of what life is like as a psychiatrist on the front line of extremely serious mental illness in places where basically there are no resources. And it's a fascinating account of um, that attempt to wrestle with extremes of behavior like psychosis, schizophrenia, et cetera, et cetera, when um, you don't really have the resources that we have um, in uh, Western medicine. Um, Sean, it's, a, it's an amazing book. For people who um, found films like Shutter Island and One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, and there's a whole genre of films about psychiatric hospitals, this is the true account of what it's like to work and be in a psychiatric hospital. And it's much more extreme, in my opinion, than anything Hollywood has ever come up with. But let's start with how you ended up there, because in fact you trained as a psychiatrist here in the UK. So tell us a bit about your training and then what drew you to return to South Africa. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Raj. I, I am South African. I trained as a medical doctor in Cape Town in South Africa. And um, when I'd completed my, my undergraduate training, I think I was probably at a little bit of a loss at what I, which direction I wanted to take. And found myself here in, in London and working in various aspects of general medicine and then did a, a, a six-month um, senior house officer post in, in psychiatry and I was just completely enraptured. I thought this, was a, this is what I wanted to do. It became absolutely clear to me. And, um, and so I embarked on, on specialist training here in London and um, when I had completed my training here, um, things changed in South Africa dramatically. The ANC was unbanned, Nelson Mandela was released, and I decided that I, I really wanted to be part of that, to be part of that change. So I returned uh, against the tide, as you can imagine, because a lot of people, I think in particular, in fact, doctors were were leaving because there was so much um, anxiety and, and fear about what the future would hold. Um, when you said you first, as an SHO, found psychiatry amazing here in yeah, London, yes. what was it that, that you found amazing? What drew you to it? I, th I think it's, it's always been the, the most uh, extreme forms of mental illness. I was, I, w I was fascinated by psychosis. I was deeply mystified, I suppose, and that 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 sort of, that attracted me. I I, I did a maybe I should. Mention I, I did an arts degree before I embarked on a, 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 a medical degree, and it's possibly that that inclined me to to the mysteries of psychiatry. And I, I've always, and I think even I mean to this day, I, I do these. I find these phenomena deeply enigmatic and mysterious. But for many people, particularly doctors, they also find these conditions frustrating. And um, I found it amazing about your book, your endless optimism and, and the war that you fight on a daily basis <laughs> with extremely frustrating <laughs> situations, predicaments and conditions. So you don't seem to get frustrated by serious I, mental illness. I, I, I think it's possibly, I think it's possibly the fascination. I'm deeply intrigued by these phenomena. I think... And I think, in a way, they, they, 
they inform us or they, they pre present an interesting dimension of something beyond psychiatry and, and, and raises to me some intriguing philosophical and maybe even sort of areas of neuroscientific interest in, in terms of what what constitutes consciousness, what, what, what constitutes the self, what, what's the nature of a community. So I, I think I was drawn in and, and sustained in a way by what I thought were, I think, really fundamental issues that, that reached beyond psychiatry that, that concern us all. You've given a clue there about the kind of psychiatrist you are, which is that more biological psychiatrists might argue with you that what you're just seeing with a person who's got psychosis is disturbed by a chemistry. It absolutely. It doesn't, it doesn't yes. raise anything profound about the nature yeah. of consciousness. No, absolutely. <laughs> I, I completely I, I, I accept that and understand that. And I, maybe I should emphasize that I was at the front line, as you've mentioned. So I was, I was, I was the the consultant psychiatrist and acute admissions ward dealing principally with the most severe forms of mental illness, predominantly psychosis and schizophrenia spectrum disorders. So I, there was no hesitation for me in, in resorting to biological treatments and pharmacological remedies. That, that wasn't, an, that wasn't a, an issue for me. But I, I think what did, in, in fact, I suppose frustrate me or find limiting was a very sort of rigid, restrictive, reductive biomedical model. So, and I think in a way that leads into some of the issues that, that I think frustrated some of my colleagues working in this biomedical, within the confines of biomedical. I'm, I'm not rejecting it all, but it just needs to be integrated to me in something, a broader framework because I thought it was limited to regard these extraordinary phenomena as merely symptoms of an underlying illness. I, in my encounters with these um, patients, and these were mostly young men, mostly young black men. Um, I, they told me extraordinary stories, and and I, it was inconceivable to me personally. And this, this is just personal perspectives, but that that to to interpret or regard these merely as symptoms of an underlying biological dysfunction, um, I thought we were missing something, and. I sensed from my patients that an enormous amount of my work had to do with acknowledging what they were going through, acknowledging their extreme experiences, not simply rejecting it. Because I, I think one of the implications, in, in a sense, of, of, a, of a pharmacological intervention, not, this is in no way arguing against the efficacy of some of the treatments that we, we used, but, but in a way it's saying, what you're saying is irrelevant, is meaningless. Um, my work as a psychiatrist is simply to seek to suppress or eliminate the symptoms of a mental illness. And I think from our patients, they wanted something more than that. Certainly, and that doesn't mean to say, yes, we, we want to be relieved of this extreme form of suffering, but we want it to be acknowledged. And, and I suppose one of the implications of that is quite possibly, and again, it's a very personal perspective, but that, that the phenomena that we were, we were witnessing were, in fact, attempts on the parts of our patient to, to find meaning. In, and there's a metaphor that I think I, 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 that recurs through the book, is, is that a, a, a perception of mental illness as a form of noise, which I, to me I, I, seems kind of something intolerable. And... And, and so our patients were 
experiencing, I think, something equivalent to a blur, something absolutely meaningless and and mere noise, and try it in the using the idiom of their cultural backgrounds, their social content, whatever it might be, to make sense of something that was intolerable. So it was, the, in a way, it's the beginning of trying to help themselves. And to me, it seemed important as a clinician to acknowledge that and support that process, while at the same time resorting to to whatever was necessary to to get them out of these their predicaments. So you seem to be saying, um, and, and I want to get in a moment to the nature of the hospital you worked at and mm. some of these stories that you're talking about, mm. but, but you seem to be saying that at the heart of psychiatry is an issue to the fact that people come with who are distressed, extremely distressed, mm. and have distressing symptoms, but they may be hearing voices or they may be very yes. anxious. Yeah. Um, and the, the gallop to take away the symptom via a biomedical approach using pharmacology yeah. is in grave danger of missing something else, which is engaging with the symptom a bit more. Yes. But I, but I want to challenge you a little bit. Sure. My, my experience of some patients is that they don't want to understand the symptom. They just want it taken away. And a lot of times when patients go to doctors, they're peeing blood, they have pain in the yes. knee. They don't want an understanding. They yes. want the thing removed instantly. And is, yes. isn't that... Um, I think I think there's a difference. I, I do think there's a difference, um, and because in a way, what I'm saying is is that what we were witnessing, to to my mind, was extreme forms of suffering, and and it is. A, I mean, I don't want to be so simplistic about this, but it was like a two. It seemed to me a two-step process. First of all, we were limited in what in our being able to be effective without acknowledging the reality because a huge part, and you might have gathered that in this book, a huge part of the the suffering, I think, an element of the suffering of, of people with mental illnesses, it's it's misunderstood and it's dismissed and madness. And, and, and we can talk about, I mean, the rather provocative and di difficult problem of, of invoking it, the concept with the, the terminology of madness, is that it's just dismissive. Are you just mad? And I think time and I, it's, I didn't want to generalize, but time and time again, there was a, a, a sense from my my patients, listen to what I'm going through, and then we can start talking. And, and, and ideally, that we could work together to negotiate some appropriate form of treatment of getting me out of this hellish place. Okay, so let's talk about the hospital itself. Let's let's get the setting. Um, what's the, the name of the hospital? And give us some kind of idea of where it is and the kind of community it serves and okay. the kind of patients that are seen. So, so, so it's it's Falkenberg Hospital in Cape Town, which is one of three specialist hospitals serving the Western Cape in South Africa, which is a population about about four or five million. So, one of three could give you some indication of the the volumes that we're dealing with. Um, it's a it's a teaching hospital. It's attached to the University of Cape Town. I was a, a, a senior lecturer in in the department of psychiatry and and, and mental health. And um, so we were combined function as a as a teacher and lecturer and running for me the acute admission unit of this hospital. So they were. It, it's an approximately hundred bed unit, um, and these were, as I've mentioned, I think there's a gender separated. So these, these were young men who were who were for the most part admitted on an involuntary basis. So 
they would it was the end of the line. I mean, they said they'd, they'd moved through the various filters of community units, um, general hospitals, and then through the, the medical legal process of being registered or certified as being needing involuntary care. So, so, the, so they, it was the most. There was nowhere else to go after our unit. This was the end of the line for them. So it, it, we were dealing with the most extreme forms of um, behavioural disturbance, I suppose, associated with mental illness. And of course, a, a, a small group of um, patients who were with us because of, of, of suicidal behaviour. So it's a 100-bedded unit. It's the acute unit. So when people are very ill and first ill, or um, the, the illness is at its height, yes. they end up in your unit. Yeah. And then the population size that this 100-bed unit serves is about well, several it's, million it's, 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 Yes, so it would have been about, about one or two million, yeah. Okay. Because, so, so I'm trying to, the, the, the probably the Western Cape, I mean, of course, keeps on shifting and there's so much influx from, from beyond the, the borders, but... So it is an enormous population which we're serving in just three specialist hospitals serving the, this province of the, of, the, of the country. And this is an impoverished community. Give us an idea of, of what they yes. earn, roughly yeah, speaking. Well, no, no, most of them earn nothing. It's, it, it's, um, okay. These were mostly young men. Oh, I mean, I think 95% unemployed, yes. So it, it really is... And when and they're it, unemployed in South Africa, they really don't... Yeah, really, no, no, there's, there's no benefits. They're, they're very, extremely limited. OK. <clears throat> so so it, it was dire, and, and something we could possibly talk about is perhaps re- associated with these dire socioeconomic circumstances with substance abuse. So a lot of... But I must emphasize, people weren't admitted simply because they were, you know, that's unthinkable to admit just because they're intoxicated. But as we, as we are all aware, I hope that that the, the particularly cannabis or dachin and the, the language we use in, in South Africa precipitated the emergence of these psychotic disorders. So, so that complicated our work enormously and added to the burden of mental illness. So give us an idea, maybe using some stories, obviously you, you've anonymised them so they can't be identified, of, of the kind of person who would turn up. What would, be, what would be their story? What would be their symptoms? How would they have ended up in trouble well, and ended up in your unit? So first, of course, of course, severely mentally ill and then, and then not having the capacity to be insightful to that and, and refusing treatment. So what I'm getting at, I suppose, is an element of dangerousness either dangerous to, to others or to themselves. So so that really would be, in most circumstances, a precipitating event would be an event of extreme dangerousness. Um, Could you give us a few examples of the kind of events? Well, I'm... I'm, I'm th- these are, again, to go... These are impoverished communities, high-density living, and for... And very... So, Fire is a, is a a major of matter of concern because that goes that happens all very quickly and it can be an absolute catastrophe for a community. So, <clears throat> on a number of occasions, um, fire setting. So, and and of course, this creates an enormous amount of anger and fear in the community. And so, that was not an infrequent precipitant of of admission. Otherwise. People would be admitted in 
making homicidal threats to to others, and then when confronted would say, it's not something, I think that was intriguing, not something I want to do. It's something I have to do. It's something I'm compelled to do. And of course, that again provokes enormous amount of fear. Often, um, so either not being aware and posing extreme danger in the community or danger to, and very often it's family members, so it'd be it, of, of, of these young men becoming deranged in, in a state of extreme distress and posing a threat to, um, to members of their own family. And I think, of course, that was just terrifying for everybody involved. What would be the kind of precipitating incident that might lead to an admission? Um, would someone have been attacked, for example? Either attacked or a, a, a threat which we, we had to take realistically, realistically on, the, on the basis of previous behaviour. But um, I must emphasise that the patient would first be assessed in a, either at the, the local community clinic and then in a general hospital. And in other words, the, the, there would be a shared concern on, through these various filters that somebody posed an extreme danger to themselves or to others. Suicide was an issue, and so that would be another precipitant of um, of an admission, extreme suicidal behaviour, and very often after the event when people had survived or there was reason to believe that they posed an extreme danger to themselves. So that was the broad spectrum, I'm afraid, sort of sadly, of um, that we had to deal with that dangerousness was the precipitant of... Um, of an admission. What about dangerousness on the ward itself? Could you give us some examples of the kind of things that well, might happen? I, I, I think that's that that's fascinating. And and again, there's you've mentioned some of the the depictions in in popular media of, and I think everybody's got their own ideas about what goes on in an acute psychiatric unit. I struggle to remember any episode when when there was a dangerousness in in, in our unit. And this is a compliment to um, this is a tribute to our nursing staff. Because they came in with these appalling histories, I never felt in any way um, threatened on the ward, and I certainly have never been assaulted in the what thirty years I've worked in this field, and never, um, nor have I felt um, in fear. Um, so I, I do want to. It's something I'd like to, because in a way, the book is trying to rather ambitiously change our ways of thinking about severe mental illness and. And the, the patients, they were contained in this unit. There the, the, were the various gradations of um, sort of li- constraints of liberty. So you moved into a closed unit, then when, once, once you started to recover, you move into semi-closed and then an open unit. But in that closed unit, patients helped each other. And I, I think it's something we, we neglect to acknowledge. And I think it's, it, it, to me, it was very often a source of some wonder some inspiration. There's this rather bizarre account there. I mean, each story, I'm trying to get a message across of some sort or another, but on one memorable event, and I remember it because I suppose it was kind of rather wonderful and a happy event rather than a sort of awful event, but I was on the unit for some reason or other, and there was a commotion, which of course is not an unusual event, a lot of shouting and carrying on. And one of the young men, the, all the focus of attention was on this young, this young black guy. 
who um, who then, to, I think, lay on the floor and started writhing about. And, and um, I think, to our complete and utter astonishment, it became apparent that he believed that he was in labour. And and he'd come in. There's no indication that he th- he thought he was a woman, let alone a pregnant woman. But he started wailing and, and carrying on. And, and I suppose what was so remarkable, the, the patients, of course, initially were rather, sort of, I think, rather frightened and, and turned to the nursing staff. The nursing staff, of course, stood back rather bemused by this bizarre situation. And the, but what, what this, the point of the story is that the, 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 the patients gathered around. They, they kind of tried to comfort him. They gave him space. They ran for guitars and, and water. And, and this thing reached a kind of crescendo. And, much wailing and shouting, and then and then some sort of parturition took place, and, and there was sort of calm, and and everybody there was a kind of celebratory atmosphere, and the in the new. When I was leaving, the this young man came up to me. There's a bundle of rags with a pair of shoes, and old shoes in this in this bundle, and he, everybody's gathered around, cooing and making all sorts of <laughs> comforting noises. And I, of course, it's not something one's prepared for in medical school that I do sort of uh, somehow make some affirmative noises. But the point w- was that that everybody recognized that he's in some sort of distress. They didn't mock him, they didn't jeer, they didn't they weren't they didn't participate because they were bored. They really were trying to help this young man in this bizarre circumstance. And I think it's something we need to acknowledge in our work. The other thing that I think is really interesting about the book, and there are many interesting things, is the the, the lack of resources you have. Um, you, you're, you, it feels like your back your back is against the wall. Mm, yes, you, yeah. you're working in a very impoverished branch of medicine mm, in a very mm, impoverished mm. area. So basically, compared to what we seem to have in the West, although in the National Health Service people keep complaining that psychiatry is under resourced. Now, when I first said that to you in our pre-interview chat, you were bemused by that because because <laughs> you, you feel that we have a lot here. And, yes, and of you, course. Yes. You were bemused by the complaints. So just let's talk a bit about that. Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, I suppose it's all relative to, to some some extent, but but certainly it, it does seem, and because I have experience at both worlds, that it it it, it certainly does seem a, a, another world. Uh, certainly here in, the, in, in 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 and certainly in London, um, where I worked, it's a matter of degree. It was extremely under resourced, and then the numbers were at. at were enormous, as I, I, I maybe should have mentioned, that at any stage there must have been between 20, 30 more people on the waiting list trying to get into our unit. Um, so we were extremely under-resourced. Um, and in particularly a lack of, uh, I suppose, which is a particularly critically of lack of community resources, which could have possibly acted as a filter, a more effective filter. So, so the situation was extreme in a way, and certainly relative to my experience here in, in London, but I think there's no, I couldn't redirect the, anything at all. The, the, I was at the end of the line, so so in other words, you, you really do need to find perhaps rather creative ways of making do with the little that you have, because there was nothing else. I mean, this was it. This was it. Uh, um, and I think it, it was a constant challenge not to become demoralized. But but at the same time, I think the only way that I could sustain myself and my team, because I was the head of this multidisciplinary team, was 
and, and that's the subtitle of this book, was to maintain hope and to... But also, I do think I couldn't have continued if I, if I didn't believe that in some perhaps very, very limited and basic way we were being helpful, that we were having some effect. And the average length of stay in, in the unit was, I suppose, about maybe 20, 30 days. And so, so people got better. I mean, it's kind of rather astonishing. But, but also, I, th I think trying to use the resources of, of the community and the families to, to help in this process. And again, I, I think we pay insufficient attention to, to families and communities in helping these young people to cope as best as possible in dire situations. I mean, we, we talk about, I mean, we've mentioned the, the difficulties within the hospital itself, but I, as we've alluded to, the, the difficulties outside the hospital are, are grave. It's another kind of a crisis of sheer poverty. So let, let's confront that point. So let's take an analogy. It's just an analogy. If you believe, um, because Western medicine's trained you, that the treatment of bipolar disorder, let's say, yeah. is the prescription of certain mood-stabilizing drugs. Mm. And if you don't have access to those mood-stabilizing drugs or a particular form of therapy, like a particular kind of CBT mm. that's specialized for the management of bipolar, and if you don't have access to that, it is easy to say, well, the reason I'm not going to get this patient better or I can't get this patient better or the reason I might give up or accept a very low standard of care yes. is not my fault. It's because I haven't got the mood-stabilizing drugs and I haven't got this, that, or the other. So it's a kind of bailout. Yeah. You, it seems to me that one of the central lessons of your book is, it, is you don't complain about what you don't have. You focus right. on what you do have. That's right. I mean, And, the, yes. and in fact, you, yeah. don't, you don't say, I can't get the patient better because I haven't got X, Y, or Z. Instead... You stay fighting with the idea that you can still get the patient that's, better, that's right. despite the fact you haven't got X, Y, and Z. Yes. Could you say a bit about that? No, sure, because there, there just isn't an option. I mean, I, I couldn't, I couldn't complain because there was nothing. So, so we, there weren't those options available to us that we didn't have, or I couldn't refer elsewhere. We had to make do with what we had, and I think I'm was constantly surprised at how um, much with limited resources we were able to achieve. And again, I think in just in terms of morale, maintaining morale, it, it just, we had to believe. But I, I, I don't want to sound as if, it, you know, that we were just completely naive. We couldn't be. We couldn't afford to be because the, the situation was in a constant crisis. But that we could be effective with very limited resources and, and, and simply bemoaning our situation by complaining that there were a lack of resources wasn't going to it just wasn't going to help anything or anybody at all so could you give us some examples of where um you you're you're forced into an act of creativity because the other tension i think is that some of the things that you may have done would be frowned upon as as not being in the textbooks or, or being a bit odd or, or weird or even <laughs> yeah. um risky um but because your back is to the wall you just forced to do stuff. Well, yeah, I, I, I suppose that one of the biggest issues, Raj, was, was um, because we, we were under constant pressure for beds. So the, the, the difficulty, the most, and for me the most difficult thing, and the, the most complicated thing in a way, was, was discharging patients when they're unwell. We just could not hold on to these extremely distressed young men for any length of time, that was in that respect. I, I often felt compromised, and 
I was also because it was difficult also from families because this is, you, we've look we've suffered enormously with this thing. It's taken us an enormous amount of trouble to get this young man into your unit. How can you discharge him? How can you do this? Um, and I would say I, he's well enough. He's not. He's not recovered. He's not fully recovered. I'm hoping that the process for recovery will continue with the support of our community nurses in the community. But I cannot hold on to this. And there's also, of course, the complicated human rights issue. How can I hold on to somebody and detain, deprive them of their basic liberties when they are saying, I've, I'm okay, I can manage? So, so that's, that was extremely difficult to, to get that right. And of course, there are tragic mistakes. But to say, I can't hold on. I mean, almost indefinitely, very often, in, in the hope that we're going to achieve a, a full recovery, we have to change the locus of this this process into the community, knowing that um, the, the resources in the community were extremely limited. The other thing that comes through um, for me in the book is the notion that every time you see a patient, you seem to start almost with a blank slate. You see, you're completely open-minded about what you could be dealing with, is my yeah. sense. Yes. Again, in, in the wealthy West, um, what happens is we're very protocol-driven. Yes. There's a view that you must give mood-stabilizing drugs to bipolar disorder, and if you haven't done, you'll, you'll be in trouble with the regulatory yeah. authority. So it's all very programmed, yes. guidelined, yes. protocol-driven. Yes. Um, yeah. And that's because there's the idea that there are mood-stabilizing drugs around. Yes. What I thought was really interesting and a liberating idea that when you haven't got the drugs you can't be protocol driven no, no. and therefore every every patient you meet you seem to view um completely open-mindedly as to no. what the solution might be yes and and to use again i suppose i suppose hesitate to use the word trying to be creative but in a way i do think it's important with very very limited resources so yes i i i i suppose but Maybe against the personal thing, I react instinctively against, I suppose, ex- the excessive resort to to protocols. We have to think. We have, and again, to go back to something I think I was saying a bit earlier. I think, I think our patients really value it when we treat them as individuals, and we try and, in some level, engage them in some sort of negation. But what do you think is going to help you? What do you? How can we sort this thing out? Um, to even even in the, the sort of in the depths of a psychotic state, it's, it always surprises me how how once there's that sort of there's that space to to work to collaborate in this whole process, how, how people have their own resources and own interesting ideas about the kind of help that they need. The other thing that I was struck by, and I, I, I'm I'm sure that you're going to maybe disagree with this, is that I I feel that sometimes a lot of psychiatry becomes about dealing with what we call personality disorder. Um, And so these are people that are colliding with society and often colliding with their therapist or doctor because they don't really share the same goal because their understanding of what they want from life is just fundamentally different from what um, life can deliver mm. very often. Uh, unlike someone with depression who wants to get better from the depression and shares your goal of getting yes. them better from the depression. So I was struck. I didn't really get a feeling from reading your book. I, I got a feeling you were dealing with a lot of mental illness, which yes. I recognised. I didn't get a feeling that you were dealing with a lot of personality disorder in quite yes. the same way that we seem to deal a lot with in the West. What are your thoughts? No, I, that? in, in, that's absolutely right. I, I, I cannot think of 
any patient that would, because of these filters, and because of this issue, these extreme criteria, I suppose, of, that 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 were necessary to put in place to avoid inappropriate admissions, we we just didn't encounter people whose only problem was that of a personality disorder. They didn't come anywhere near our unit. They were, for the most part, psychotic illnesses. So I've you know I feel. Uh, I suppose a little bit hesitant to talk about personality disorders because it's beyond my field of, I think, my field of, of expense or expertise. But, but that interests me because I think I wonder whether it's the case that as a system gets better funded, and I hesitate to yes. describe the NHS yes. as well funded, yeah. in a sense it pulls in more personality disorder, I think it draws it in. I think that's absolutely right. I, I do think so. And I think that creates its own problems. Um, and there's a kind of paradox in this. I think, and again, I speak with some hesitation about this, but again, against perhaps popular perceptions, people with serious mental illness, and I'm talking particularly about, I suppose, in my area of interest with schizophrenia, people do get better. Of course, there are problems of relapse. Um, but, but it's not that, for the most part, people responded to treatment as opposed to, and I, again, I say this without hesitant because it might be on my field of expertise, but people with personalities disorders often do not get better. And I think this is a cause of considerable despondency and demoralization amongst my colleagues working in, that, in those areas. And that was my expense because I chose to work in this particular field of severe mental illness, but some of my colleagues in other areas of the, the service dealt more with people with personality disorders and maybe anxiety and depression. And I I think psychiatry creates problems for itself in, in possibly medicalizing problems of living and overextending its boundaries. And, and, and then we become demoralized because what can we do? Some of my colleagues will be having these discussions. Um, depression, anxiety arising out of extremes, for example, socioeconomic deprivation. What's the country going to do about that? How can we expect we're going to, to effectively um, treat these problems if they're psychiatric disorders as opposed to understandable responses to, to dire socioeconomic circumstances? Um, so um, in terms of um, what you see um, going on in the West um, compared to what you um, uh, deal with, is there a sense in which you think most psychiatrists um, or therapists or clinicians might benefit from experiencing a little bit of what you experience and they would come back with renewed optimism or vigour? Um, as opposed, Because there's, there's an issue about burnout and stress. Oh, yes, yeah, and therapists, yeah, yeah. And people are jaded. I think... Sometimes. I, yes, and I, I think part of that, I think there's so many elements to it. I, th- I think one is th- that we do get demoralized. We, we do, we always, as clinicians, I think most of us feel there's so much more we should be doing. But I, I think that, that that's one element of it. And, and But as, you, as we've been discussing, I mean, to turn that, turn that upside down, it's saying that, that to to in a way to keep in mind that we that in extreme situations there's nowhere else to go and we can be helpful I mean, it, it, and, 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 and not to overburden ourselves with false expectations about magical cures but, but that we can be helpful but I think 
another part of it is, is the public perception of we, we talk about the misunderstandings associated with m severe mental illness. That, that's one, and we, and I think that's a huge part of the problems that we deal with. But I think that also affects us as 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 mental health care workers. That that this this perception that we have of uh, this misunderstanding of mental illness applies also to to healthcare workers. That that what the hell are psychiatrists doing? Who are they? What are they? Are they um, either ineffectually just listening to people's problems or acting as social policemen? I mean, there's, I suppose, the, the crude dichotomies. Um, but I think this affects us. I think we can become demoralized by this, this lack of understanding about both mental illness and, and mental health care workers. And I think that affects us and demoralizes us. Another key difference that struck me, and you may or may not agree with me on this one, is that you seem remarkably free, given the conditions that you're working in, to try things out. And we have regulatory authorities here. Um, there are many different regulatory authorities, um, the Care Quality Commission, the General Medical Council, etc., yeah. etc. Et so a lot of medicine has become very defensive. We're doing things to avoid landing in trouble yeah. with a regulatory authority. Yes. And I didn't get the feeling that you were suffered from that constraint. No, and it was remarkable because you're in a very high-risk situation yes. where you'd have thought that complaints would come thick and fast because bad things, things going wrong, would be happening almost on a daily mm. basis. Mm. So there was a very very odd paradox it mm. felt to me you mm. felt a, 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 a able to practice freely not scared of regulatory authorities coming and investigating bad things happening and here we are in the west yeah. um, where much fewer bad things happen but we are yes. overburdened yes. with this tendency to practice mm. defensively and mm. it guides our practice mm. all the time mm. it constrains creativity and uh, risk-taking well, well, as a result I, I think that's an, another absolutely that's another element of, the, of this this um, this disaffection or demoralization is is if we persuaded to practice defensively because we were in a strange way relatively free of that where I was working in, in these extreme circumstances. I was taking extreme risks all the time and it, that was, I think, understood by the, the much fewer and less effective regulatory authorities that we were in an extreme situation we, there were no other alternatives. It was accepted in good faith that we were practicing as, as effectively and as safely as we possibly could in extremely limited circumstances. So the, the, the other side of that coin is, do you think um, the lack of regulation meant bad things did happen? So, for example, if we go back to the, the Aristotelian idea that what you need to do in society is not have CCTVs everywhere keeping a check on people. You have to raise virtuous people, and they will naturally be virtuous. I, 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 and the kind of people who end up doing what you're doing are naturally virtuous, in a sense, because they wouldn't do it if they were nefarious, in a sense. I, I do think that's the right way to go about things. I really do. I, I think it, it's based, I suppose, on, on trust and good faith. And those things are, of course, difficult to to legislate or, 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 or formalize. And I, I do think that was some sort of understanding that underpinned our practices. That, and, and again, these difficult decisions that we made with these young men, I had to say, I, I'm taking a risk. I trust that this is going to be all right. And, and forming that kind of strange, intimate relationship with patients and their families, that was something that you couldn't formalize, in, in, or certainly not medically legally.
Okay, but suppose um, in, a, in, a, in a situation that you were in where there's very poor regulation, let's say, or very scarce, mm. thin on the ground, you could be a bad egg. You could have yes, been sure. you know, discharging people or, let's yeah. say, charging people on the side. There are all sorts of ways in which you could have exploited yes. Yes. or people could exploit the yes. vulnerable. Um, yes. um, but so how do we how do we know or how do we protect against that? I mean, do, is it is there a kind of self-regulation that goes on? You spot a bad egg, I, I think, and and you guys you, do something you, you, about sure. it. Sure, I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I think, and I think that might be one of the difficulties in private practice. Um, and I've never worked in private practice, but I think that might be an issue. Whereas, I think, in terms of regulation, it, rather than any kind of formal statutory body, it were, we we relied on each other and our colleagues to to regulate in possible malpractice. And do you think that happened effectively? I'm struggling to to think of a case when something really went awry. Um, I think I think the collegial thing was really powerful. Um, because we were all affected. So if somebody misbehaved, then we'd all be affected. And again, it goes back to this issue earlier of, of, of trust and, good, uh, and working in good faith in the absence of, of formalised um, regulations and constraints. So, I know I'm, I'm, I'm being provocative here. Do yeah. you think that sometimes in an excessively regulated system, if I can use that value-loaded term, the regulator is looking to find things as opposed to there really being things? Well, I, th I think uh, looking to find things might be a bit extreme, but I, I, I do think it, it, the effect can be inhibiting and that can f affect and limit patient care because the trust is then undermined by anxiety about the consequences of perhaps transgressing in some, some maybe some relatively petty regulation. Um, we're running out of time. It's been a fascinating interview. Um, um, my, my final provocation um, is that I, I think that a lot of people choose surgery in medical school um, who are problem solvers and they want to get in there, take out the, mm -hmm. the, the appendix or the malfunctioning liver and sew the patient up, send them on their way. There is, a, excuse the pun, a clear-cut solution and there's a clear diagnosis. And a lot of medicine attracts people mm. who are drawn to that. I think psychiatry can be like that, in that I think you can solve people's yes. problems and do it as effectively. However, I don't think it attracts people who are necessarily problem-solving in that way. And sometimes these are people who seem to like the fact that you can bat away problems by saying, oh, this patient needs to see a forensic psychiatrist. Oh, this patient needs a CBT therapist. So right. what you're doing is you're passing the buck yes, yes. all the time. Yes. Or this patient is too risky for me to see, etc., yes. etc. Et yes. You could not pass the buck. No. You were the end of the line. Yes. There was no one else to pass the buck to. Yes. So... What are your thoughts about that idea that there's, it takes a special kind of person to... to some people might say, grandiose, <laughs> to say, the buck stops with me and I don't need anyone to refer to. I'll make it work. I'll make it happen. Anyway, We, 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 we can never be grandiose because we, we, we couldn't do... I mean, we can't do all the spectacular things that our surgical colleagues could do. So, so we couldn't. We could never imagine that we, we, we would cure things, fix things, the way some of our colleagues, I think, but again, that's a whole other conversation about some of the, the mythologies of medical cure. Um, but but I, th I think there was something curiously exhilarating in, in having, I can't say being on one's own, because I was working with, in a team of 
of course, social workers and psychologists and occupational therapists and, of course, the, the nursing staff. So we worked together, but we there was an extraordinary sense that we were all clear about that the, that we couldn't refer on, that we, we, we were on our own and having to make the best of a, a very difficult situation. So I th- to go back to this issue of, of morale, to simply bat things on, I mean, that's not... That's not gratifying. That I can't imagine that being a an easy way to work. So even though, it, of course, it was limited in what we could do and what we managed to achieve, but it was still gratifying. It was worthwhile. Sean Bowman, thank you very much indeed. Um, it's been lovely talking to you. The book, again, is called Madness, Stories of Uncertainty and Hope. Um, and uh, it, it's a fantastic book. It's, it's a thrilling uh, read it reads a bit like a novel, um, although it's all real. Um, and um, I think I can't remember if it was Mark Twain that said something about the problem with fiction is that it has to be credible. <laughs> There's a sense in which this is all true yes, and it's incredible. It is. It is. Thank you very much indeed for the interview and thank you for the book. Thank you so much.